The other week, Zach and I were walking out with Rusty to uh, Zach's truck, and uh, he was gonna, we we're gonna. Zach was gonna load Rusty up and take him home. It was dark at night, and you need to know this: Rusty loves the moon. He loves the moon. When he loves to go out, he would he would tell me during the day, Grandpa, take me outside so I can see the moon. I was like. I'm not sure it's out there, and it, it, you got to see it best at night. And, and so when he would come over to our house, Grandpa, let me see the moon. And he would do that with Zach and us. I wanna see, and he would love to go outside, and he would love to see the moon. And many times, you know, this moon is full that particular night that Zach and I were taking Rusty out to the truck and load him up. It was a full moon. And we, we just paused, and I kind of knelt down, and I said, Rusty, look at that. That's the moon. Isn't it amazing? And he just said, yeah. And he wanted, to, he wanted to talk about the moon. And I said, it's so bright, isn't it? But this is going to blow your mind. The moon has no light in and of itself. I want you to think about that. Because this illustration has profound truths embedded in it. God actually gives us truths throughout this, his creation. And we began to, to explain that he, he'll probably forget and not remember till high school astronomy. But we said, you know, the sun is on the other side of the world and it's shining. But we right now are turned away and we look up and we see this moon. And the moon is not like the sun. It has no radiance or glory or light of its own. It only reflects that light that the sun gives. This, is my, this was my point Last week, we need to realize that God's church, God's people are a display of his splendor. What an amazing truth that God by his spirit lives in me and displays his glory. The God who is perfect in every way dwells within this very imperfect vessel, this broken vessel, this rebellious vessel that has been broken and changed to want to follow him now. He has chosen, the God of the universe has chosen to live in that vessel. He's chosen to live in you. Mike, you're a display of God's splendor. Jim, you're a display of God's splendor. And we realized that individually, we display God's splendor. And you see, suffering, and this is not going to be my point, but we went through Romans 8. We went through, and, and much other in Romans, we went through First Peter, and it was like this truth resounding over and over and over again. As James 1.3 says, we can now have great joy whenever we face trials of any kind, pure joy, sincere, unadulterated, pure joy, nothing watered down, rejoicing with just ecstatically rejoicing in the sufferings that we go through. Why? Because we, through suffering, become a display of God's splendor, and he's working something in us that nothing else can. Now, I want you to know the flip side of that is, when we get to heaven, Mike Curtis will be perfected, and I won't need any more trials to perfect me. I'm looking forward to that, church. I know you are, too. I won't need them anymore. Now, 
I can rejoice in my sufferings because I am serving such a faithful God so that in every element of my suffering, he actually, listen to this, he does it for my good. What? He does it for your good. And so I reflect God's glory as he is forming Christ in me. But we also learn, not only does the Spirit of God live in us, but we're two or more are gathered in my name, Jesus said, there I am in your midst. Now, why didn't he simply say, wherever you are, I'll never leave you or forsake you, because he said this at the end of Matthew 28, and my spirit's going to live in you. He is now talking in Matthew 18, that I just quoted, two or three gathered in my name, there I am in their midst, because he is talking about a different element of the presence of God. We, individually, are a display of his splendor. Church, collectively, even here this morning, we are a display of the splendor and glory of God. Actually, if you were to look in Ezekiel 44, verse 4, write that down, Ezekiel 44, verse 4. Ezekiel sees this temple, which I truly do not believe is some millennial temple or end times temple or anything like that. Scripture makes it abundantly clear over and over and over in the New Testament that, number one, Jesus is the fulfillment of both the tabernacle and the temple, and that now we, being the body of Christ, are the fulfillment of that. We are a holy temple, in a holy building in which the Spirit of God dwells, rising to become a holy temple in the Lord. Amazing. And so here's what happens, though. In Ezekiel 44, verse 4, the glory of God comes down, and Ezekiel is observing this, and the Spirit takes him into the temple, and he sees the glory of God fill the temple. And do you know what his response is? He falls on his face, and he worships God, because Ezekiel just saw not only the glory of God upon Jesus himself, but the glory of God in the body of Christ. And it was so very prophetic. And so here was, here was our conclusion. God loves to display, display his glory, not only as we are individually out in the world, but when we collectively come together and gather together, he loves to display his glory. We looked at that passage in 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25, and it says this, when all of you are prophesying, that is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We learned that two chapters earlier. This prophetic gift, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, those who are inquirers or unbelievers will be convicted of the truth of what's been saying, of what's been said, and they will fall down. Listen to this. And they will declare, surely God is among you. What a profound truth. This glory of God, the heart of the Lord, is to so manifest his glory. And we're going to look at some manifestations of that in the book of Acts. And then ask this uh, honestly consuming question, God, how do we, how do I live a life in which you will display your splendor? How do we do that? We learned that when God displays his glory, 
in his church, even the lost are saved. But we have to be careful because especially in our day, we offer many substitutions for the glory of God. The glory of God, that very thing that will cause unbelievers to say, surely God is among you. And we learned a lesson from Hezekiah because when his, apparently his wicked father, King Ahaz, had taken this bronze serpent that was on a pole that in Numbers 21, church, listen, 700 years prior. We don't know where that, that had been kept in the temple, but in, when Hezekiah ascends the throne, the people of Israel had been offering incense to this bronze serpent 700 years ago. What happened 700 years ago from us? 700 years ago. That would be around 1,300. Nobody was living in America, so let's not take any examples there. What about churches being built? What about churches being built? What about altars, magnificent altars and stained glass windows and cathedrals? What about incredible works that originally were built for the glory of God? But should they, now in our day, be used for any other purposes? This is what Hezekiah did. He smashed the bronze serpent. Oh. Because what they had done, you see, incense were, were symbolic of prayers before the, before the altar, excuse me, before the, uh, the ark in which God rested on the other side of the veil. The prayers or the incense that was offered was offered to the presence of God. And the people had substituted the presence of God with this thing that he called Nahashtim. And my challenge was church in our day. Churches everywhere in America are presenting Nahashtims. And we are substituting the very presence of God and the display of his glory amongst his people. We are substituting that thing with fun and with entertainment and anything. When elders of the church get together, Francis Chan was relating this because he went through a transformation on this very idea. And he said, when, the, when we elders, our hearts were good. We, our controlling question is, what can we do to get the lost in the door? He came to this conclusion. It is one thing and one thing only. It is the glory of God displayed in our midst. You are that glory of God that settled upon the temple that caused Ezekiel himself to fall down and worship God. 1 Corinthians 14, surely God is among you. This is what we have to offer. Francis Chan goes so far as to say this. He says, you know what? We should be so dependent upon God, even in our services, that if he chooses for any reason not to show up, we have nothing to offer the world. It will be a boring service because we have made a choice to not allow our services to rest on the talents of men, on how funny the preacher is. Nothing. How slick the band is, 
I think our band's pretty awesome. I love it. But I, I want to tell you this. There are a lot of other slicker bands. No, no fault to you guys, you band members, Meredith. There's a lot of others, and some of them have some pretty amazing voices. And you're like, wow, this is really amazing. And, and, and can I just, and I think this might be a bias, but I, I truly believe this. The singular reason why I love the band here is because they know how to worship God, period. And when we worship God, it is not about what happens up there. It is about what happens in here and here, individually and corporately. Now, my introduction has taken up quite a bit of time, but I, I want us to dig into this. That's not what I'm <laughs> preaching on. The, well, it kind of is. Follow me. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me just give you an example. We're going to use this now as a springboard to move now into this concept of how God displayed his glory in the early church. And church, when I'm done, I, I want God, and I truly believe very prophetically, this is what God, God wants to stir up a hunger in every single one of your hearts. And co collectively, we, we can hear it when we pray as a church, but God wants to stir up this hunger in us for his glory. That's why Moses said, show me your glory. And when he saw the glory of God, the very next chapter of Ezekiel 34, it says he came down and his face radiated with the glory of God. Humorous thing, though, they misunderstood this Hebrew word for radiance. In the Middle Ages, they translated that Hebrew word for radiance as horns. So if you look into some medieval art, Moses comes down from the mountain with little horns. No, no lie. Um, but it was, they misunderstood it. And it's because Jerome in 400, when he translated it into the Latin Vulgate, he mistranslated that word, horns. Yeah, Moses came down with horns. Oh, the radiance and glory of God because he had been basking in that glory that God didn't want anyone else to see. So a cloud came down to cover that glory. Only Moses saw that glory. Church, I... Man, I'm so excited. When you are standing before Jesus in heaven, you will see the unveiled glory of God. And I tell you what, I think I'm going to fall down. I will be completely speechless, maybe for eternity. Uh, no, not for eternity. I I'm going to be so antsy to worship him, but it will overwhelm me. I know it will. And so but when we're done, should we ever finish this morning? But when we're done, I want us to hunger for the very presence of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. But not the wisdom of this age <clears throat> or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, which is Christ revealed. In the Old Testament, he was concealed. In the New Testament, by God's apostles and prophets, revealed. That is the secret wisdom of God. Secret meaning Formerly not seen, but now seen. That's the concept of this Greek word secret. So it says, no, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for what church? Our, what? For our glory? Is that what your Bible says? Yes. The gospel, Jesus coming to earth, that was, that was destined for our glory before time began. It was in the heart of God. You were in the heart of God before he created anything. 
the gospel destined for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For, they, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Let's understand this before we move into the book of Acts. We are like the moon. We have no glory or radiance or splendor or light of our, of our own. None. And yet at night, it is the largest illuminated body in the sky. It is huge, and especially as it rests on the horizon. It is amazingly huge, amazingly bright, especially when it's full. And Rusty loves it. And that's good enough for me. Man, I love that. I'll go out there and I'll show him the moon anytime he wants. But understand this. You, church, you are that moon. You have no glory of your own. The glory that God destined the gospel for, the glory in you, is completely God's doing. Completely. The Lord of glory. The sun. S-O-N, yes, S-U-N as well. And he shines that glory on his church. Now, I want us to move into the book of Acts. And I want us to see how did God do this. Acts. Now, you can't see this, but I can, and I am skipping all over the place, and I really don't mean to, Lord, but Acts, Acts chapter 2. We're just, again, we are going to be looking at a number of verses right fast and listen just as quickly. But in Acts chapter, chapter 2, when there are 3,000 that come to Christ, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In verse 43, it says, everyone was filled with awe amazement, wonder, and many more wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. So the first way in which God displayed his glory in the church was through miracles. It says a little bit later in verse 47 that the church not only gathered in the temple courts, but in homes as well, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. These people were hostile. These were the very same people that killed their King Jesus. They are now finding favor. They are realizing there's something in this group of people that he, they later called the way, the, those people who, who live for Jesus and worship him as a God. And there's something in them and it won people's hearts. Why? Because they were a display of the glory of God. Through miracles that the apostles were doing, through the church being the church, living for Jesus. And they captured people's attention. Remember, the glory now displayed in the church is not, does not originate from them. It is because the Spirit lives in them, and they are radiating Jesus, the light from the sun, to stay with the illustration. In Acts, Acts chapter 5, verse 12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. <clears throat> and then later, well, let me just stay there for a moment. Understand this. I, I am fully aware, and I actually grew up in a church that taught this, that said God does not do miracles in our day. He just doesn't do miracles. Nobody lays hands on people and they're healed. That was for the apostolic age. Only the apostles did that. First of all, let me just tell you this. 
and that the reason that they say that, and I appreciate the reason why they say that. I do. I get it. But the reason why they say it is because the apostles were the keepers of the gospel. They were the bearers of the truth. They and only they had been with Jesus throughout his three-and-a-half-year ministry, and they were now to entrust the world with this truth. Any questions about the gospel and what Jesus did or said, they could always go to one of the 12. Always. Understand that miracles are signs and wonders. Miracles are signs and wonders. Wonders because people step back and say, wow. This is absolutely amazing. Who did this? Where does this power come from? That's why they're also signs, because they point to the message. Who is the center of that message? Jesus himself. I was taught that miracles confirmed the speaker. The miracles confirmed the man. Can I challenge you that there is not one verse in the entire Bible that says that? I understand that they're trying to safeguard the gospel. But church, that is, not a, that is not biblical in any way. John Calvin himself made this mistake. And I appreciate a lot of what John Calvin said, but he was wrong. Desperately wrong. Because miracles are signs, and such as in Mark chapter 16, it said... Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that confirmed it. The word was confirmed. The miracles highlighted their message, which was all about Jesus. That's why when Jesus did miracles, it confirmed his word, which was about who? It was all about him. Acts chapter 2, verse 21, a man accredited, Jesus, a man accredited by God with miracles wonders, and signs. That's what Peter said. Why? Because the gospel message that he preached, the gospel of the kingdom was all about him. So this is some of the ways in which God displays his glory, manifestations of the Holy Spirit through spiritual gifts. When God speaks to the lost through a prophetic word, and, and hopefully, when a man steps up to proclaim the word, at moments, he utters a prophetic utterance. He gives a prophecy. In the, even some cessationists, okay, like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, probably one of the most profound preachers of all time, on 12 different occasions, God prophesied through him very specifically. And it would be more in the form of what Scripture in 1 Corinthians 14 calls a revelation. And God would show him that there was a man sitting in there and, and this, that, or the other, very detailed, and he was spot on. And this is a man who believed miracles had died out. And yet he walked in that. And so I, I am simply saying, church, part of this glory that God is displaying is in miracles. Part of it is God's transforming us so that we shine Jesus in the way we love, supernaturally love, the way we express joy. We are not a depressed people, though at times even Jesus himself was pressed in the Garden of Gethsemane, was he not? And yet, his life was characterized by joy. I, 
I, I'm sorry, I, I'm very firm on this. I despise the teaching that shows in, in movies G, Jesus as this depressed guy so consumed with the cross. The Bible only tells me at the very end of his ministry did this pressure begin to impact him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, even to the point where he said he feared he might die. Other than that, Jesus was filled with joy, supernatural joy. You can walk as a display of God's splendor. You can walk in supernatural joy because it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of your best efforts. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is doing this in you. Peace. We could go on and on about the fruits of the They are a display of God's splendor in your life. They distinguish you from the world. And this is what we were talking about last week, so I'm not going to repeat myself except what I just said. Let's move on. Chapter 5, verses 16, 15, and 16, even to the point where it says that Peter, listen to this, Peter's shadow fell on some of them, and they were healed. Demons were cast out. What? Extraordinary miracle. Paul, in Acts 19, he, he, he took some of his sweat aprons and, and sweatbands, and he sent them with people, and they took them to the sick, and they were healed, and demons were cast out. Luke tells us that those were extraordinary. In other words, they didn't happen all the time. Very uncommon. What would keep God from doing that today? Church, absolutely nothing. Why? Because that doesn't confirm a person. It confirms their message. And so God is going to be doing things in our lives. God is going to be allowing us to display his glory. If you turn to Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, So the word of God spread. This is right after they began to fully meet the needs of widows, both Hebrew and Grecian widows. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Why? And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The priest's job was to take care of these needs. And now the priests step back and said, the church is doing it even better than we ever could. What is up with that? I'll tell you what's up with it. God's displaying his glory in his church. God's transforming his church. The church is becoming this reflection of God's glory. That's what's, that's what's going on. So here, I want to ask this question. We're going to spend the rest of our time on this. You're going to allow me, by the way, to go past 12 because we got started late because of a computer glitch. So I am buying time right now, okay? I am going to go over a few minutes. I'm just letting you know. Okay, how, how did God display his glory? And then the following question would be, then God, how can we, how did God display it? How can we walk in this? I want us to focus on two words right now in the Greek. Let me understand, let, let us understand that many times in any language, there are these things called synonyms. Generally speaking, we use them interchangeably. I'll give you an example that more of you would be familiar with. And that is the Greek word gnosis or gnosis, the G silent, and epignosis, the preposition epi is in front of it. Both of them are translated knowledge or in verb form to know. However, epignosis generally inclines towards a full knowledge or a relational knowledge. Most authors in scripture don't play on that. They use them interchangeably. However, Peter, and especially in 2 Peter, that's his goal, in fact. 
he plays up on this difference between these two Greek words. So understand that synonyms in the Greek, as in English, mean pretty much the same thing, but you can also use them to contrast one another. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to have us look at two Greek words. I'm going to give you scripture passages for each of them, and we're going to come to some conclusions just as far as how Luke uses them differently. Though they're synonyms, he focuses on their differences. Those two Greek words, and you don't need to even know these words. If you don't know how to spell them, that's totally fine. But you may have heard them before. One is called plato, the other is called plerao. They both mean to fill. But they're used differently by Luke. Luke, as opposed to many of the other authors in the New Testament, chooses to focus on how, they, how they're different. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says that the Spirit of God, when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and I'm going to right now look at this first word of plerao, plerao, to fill. In Acts 2, 4, it says that the Holy, the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, 2, 3, yeah, 2, 3, excuse me, 2, 2, wow, I'll get this right. 2-2, it says that suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. Now, that's contrasted to the, the other Greek word, plato, that's found two verses later. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Let's look at some of these passages and then make conclusions. Chapter 5, verse 3. It says... Peter says to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? His heart was filled, okay? So in Pentecost, in that upper room, the room was filled. Now here, there, the Ananias' heart is filled. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says, with regard to choosing the seven that were to take care administratively, take care of the Grecian widows, it says, brothers, the apostles directing them, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Verse eight, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people, who, by the way, would be another example with Philip of at least two people who were not apostles, that God did many signs and wonders, miracles through, not just the apostles. And so, here he is, and it says that he was full of God's grace and power. We're actually going to come back to Stephen in just a few minutes. In chapter 11, 24, it says concerning Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. You could actually look at other words that Luke uses with regard, uh, excuse me, other passages that Luke uses with this word, and you would come to this conclusion. I truly believe this. You would come to this conclusion that plerao means to fill up like a reservoir from which we can draw from. Let me say that again, to fill up like a reservoir. I am being filled up like a reservoir from which I would be able to draw from, filled up with God's grace and power, filled up with God's spirit from which I can draw from. Now, understanding that, the disciples were 
full of the Holy Spirit. You could not be a leader without being full of the Holy Spirit. And yet here is something that we find. Very curious. Now I want to share with you this other Greek word, Plato, because in Acts 2.4, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. We now move to chapter 4, verse 8, and it says that Peter, standing before the Sanhedrin, he's already full of the Holy Spirit. Peter then filled, this is our other word, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he goes on to say, there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. And he points to Jesus. Why? At that very moment, though he is full of the Spirit, the Spirit comes upon him. And I'm going to use this word for the, for, for the Spirit anoints him at that very moment. Because here's what you're going to find. Every time this word is used, it happens with someone who's already full of the Spirit, and then they begin to speak. Interesting. You don't believe me? Chapter 4, verse 31. Just come back from being persecuted. <clears throat> and they're praying in verse 31. Verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They sat there. They did nothing. No. They spoke the word of God boldly. Men, women who are filled, who are full of the Spirit. Now, they're filled with the Spirit and speak. And this word, let me just make sure that I've covered my bases here. Oh, chapter 13, verse 9. Paul, that we learn in chapter 9, is filled with the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit now. He says to Elymas, who was a Jewish sorcerer, keeping Sergius Paulus from hearing the truth about Jesus. He stood in the way, keeping this man from coming to faith that Paul and Barnabas were trying to reach. Saul then turns to him, filled with the Spirit. And I'm going to advise you, don't follow his example unless you are filled with the Spirit, okay? And he says this, turning to Elymas. He is, Paul's filled with the Spirit, and he says, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. Do not ever turn to your spouse and say that. <laughs> Don't do it. They're going to come to me. I know it. My wife, she just, no, nope, I don't want to ever hear that. He was filled with the Spirit. Can I, I'm just, trust me, if you ever say that to your wife, I'm going to just declare prophetically very, right now, you were not filled with the Spirit. You were filled with something else. You were filled with anger. You were filled with selfishness. You were filled with something other than the Spirit, and that's why you spoke. But he is filled with the Spirit. You see, this word, plato, means to fill up to overflowing for a special purpose at hand, generally to speak by the Holy Spirit. And I am now substituting it with this word anointed. Full of the Spirit, and yet there are times in which the Spirit comes upon them specially and specifically to speak on God's behalf. You, church, this is a display of God's glory. This is a display of God's glory. So how did the early church 
display God's glory? How did they do this? How can we be both full of God's spirit and yet filled over and over by God's spirit? How do we do this? So here's what I'm going to do. I want us to look at this example of Stephen that I read just a, excuse me, a little bit about. Stephen was the first martyr in the church. And when I am done, you're going to probably, I did this, and, and, and it would be very natural, I think. You would ask the question, wow, God, this has got to be one of the most amazing men of God, and yet he was the first martyr? Why did you give him such a short life? He was a, you used him so powerfully in speech and in action. Why would you want to take him off of the earth? I'm not going to propose that I've got the entire answer here, but I think an answer is going to emerge. So let's turn to Acts chapter 6. Let's look at this man with the remaining, I'm not going to tell you, several minutes that we have, okay? Acts chapter 6. <laughs> Let me read that verse again, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. I want you to write those two things down. We're, we're going to keep track now of what Stephen is full of. He is full of God's grace and God's power. And because of that, God worked great wonders and miraculous signs. He was that magisterial moon that radiated God's grace and glory, none of which originated with him. It was all a reflection of the glory and power and grace of God, all of it. Write that down, God's grace and God's power. Now, if we were to back up, he is one of those men that, according to verse 3, was full of the spirit and wisdom. We're going to come back to that word wisdom, but so we've got God's grace, God's glory, excuse me, God's grace, God's power. Now we've got God's spirit and wisdom. When he is mentioned among the seven, we find even more qualifying remarks. Those men are mentioned from verses, in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, it says they chose Stephen. Do you see that in your text? They chose Stephen, a man full of what? Faith. Write that down a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. By the way, also Philip, no qualifiers there, but I guarantee you that he as much as Stephen was filled with everything from God as well. Because we read about him two chapters later going into Samaria and God doing amazing things through him. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I, right now, I, I realize I am talking about, you know, very visible uh, miracles and God displaying his glory this way. When a sinner is convicted by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word and Jesus, who is the truth, reveals himself also as the only way and that sinner repents and they find in Christ and only in Christ the remedy to every problem that they've encountered in life, that is a display of God's glory. The Spirit of God working unseen behind the stages, so to behind the stage, so to speak, 
in the background, if you will, beginning as Stephen or, or Philip's preaching, stirring up hearts and causing this, this yearning for what they have, what they're preaching that they want. They, that, and, and consequently, they say, I want Jesus. And just like in 1 Corinthians 4, falling on their faces and saying, surely God is among you. But they repent and they say, I want to follow this Jesus that you're telling me about. That is a display of God's glory as well. We don't see it necessarily until they actually fall down or confess or water baptized or whatever. But that is a display of God's So many ways in which God displays his glory. So how is it that I can walk in this way and that we as a church can walk in a way that God displays his glory? Full of God's grace and power, full of God's spirit and wisdom, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So you should now, seeing that they, you, seeing that the Holy Spirit's mentioned twice, you should have five qualifiers with regard to Stephen. Do you, do you have that written down? Full of, full of five different things. Now I want you to look at that list, and I want you to do this. I want you to circle everything. In your list there, circle everything that God does totally from beginning to end. Leave blank anything that Stephen might have to offer. For example, Stephen does not offer God's grace, but Stephen does offer faith. We need to talk about that. Stephen does not offer God's power. God might work through him powerfully, but Stephen does offer wisdom. Let me just speak to those two things real briefly. And, and let me add one other thing that is not written down there, so I want you to put this in parentheses. That is Stephen's humility. And here's why I know Stephen is a very humble man, because he's full of God's grace. And Scripture makes it clear that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the who? The humble. So if he's full of God's grace, according to Scripture, he was a humble man. So Stephen came with that. Those two things, wisdom, faith, and humility. But humility in brackets, it's implied. <clears throat> Understand this, because here's what I want us to see. This is all about God. It is not about the man Stephen and what an amazing man of God he was. Though he was amazing. But he was only a vessel. He was like the moon. He reflected God's glory. That's all he did. And that's all that we can do. But how do I do that? Here's what Stephen did. Full of wisdom. Where did his wisdom come from? I'm going to guarantee it came from one source and one source only. And that is God's word. God's word. And it's not because he just had the entire Old Testament memorized. Maybe he did. They did a lot of memorization in those days, okay? If I were to back then say, hey, anybody who's ever memorized a book like Haggai, raise your hand. There'd be a lot of hands raised. You do that today. How many of you ever memorized a book? Maybe a hand or two, you know. Um, I'm not talking about the titles of the book. I'm talking about the entire <laughs> book, okay? Yet not too many hands. And, and yet Stephen was a man of the word because he had wisdom. He probably camped out in Proverbs like every day. He was just a man of wisdom, and it impacted him so much. So do you realize that if you were to look at James' definition, James 3's definition of wisdom, it is all about character. Why? Because when you get the truth of God in you, the word of God in you, it will transform you. 
It will change you. You'll start taking on the very character of Christ. You'll start looking like Jesus. Why? Because the word of God dwells in you richly. So what is to Stephen's credit? He sat at the feet of Jesus, figuratively speaking, before the word of God, and he learned from God. That's where his wisdom came from. He, I don't know if he was some super intellect. That's not what the word wisdom means. He may have been, but that's not what Scripture's highlighting. It says wisdom. Jesus is the source, Colossians 2 says, of all wisdom. All wisdom. Every bit of wisdom that is offered throughout this universe, it comes from Jesus himself. And he sat at Jesus' feet, so to speak, and he learned from the master. So what's to his credit? That he had like so much scripture memorized? No. He knew the word and it had transformed him. Okay? Secondly, let's look at great humility. And I'm only going to say this. Humility is what God does when he breaks a man and puts him back together. Let me just say that again. Humility is when God breaks a man or a woman and then mends him. He's got to bring you down to bring you up. If you've never been broken, truly broken, and, and I'm not just talking about when you first gave your heart to Christ and you humbled yourself before Jesus is king. I am talking about in life itself as a follower of Jesus. I, I want, do you want to be used by, do you want to be like Stephen? I'm going to tell you this. He's going to have to bring you to a place where you're broken. We looked at Luke 4, and the Greek word that's there doesn't just mean broken, it means crushed. We are the broken, crushed ones that Jesus has put back together. We were worse off than Humpty Dumpty Church, okay? But Jesus, the master designer, managed to put us back together. He's still mending us, don't get me wrong, but he's going to have to break you. He's going to have to crush you, and it's going to hurt. And I don't mean this to sound negative, but isn't this, in, at least in part, what suffering does? It breaks us, and it makes us realize how vulnerable and weak we are and how dependent I have to be to make it through this life on Jesus. I have to be. And that brings me to this concept of faith. The reason why you have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, originally, God pouring out his grace, stirring you up, leading you to uh, conviction of sin. Re you repented, and so God poured out his spirit upon you. He forgave you of all, our sin, all your sins. This happens when you first encounter the living God and you become a Christian. You are converted. He changes. He begins this amazing concept of transformation or sanctification, Scripture talks about. But So that is initial faith. But I am talking now about this day-by-day -day walk in faith that is very similar. The reason why you believe in Jesus for your finances isn't just because the Bible says so. That's where we start, always. But it's, as you trusted that this was true and that my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ, you actually had the audacity to believe that. And when you believed it, God showed himself faithful. 
And from now on, and it's building more and more and more, your faith is now attached completely to the faithfulness of God. This is something you have to walk in. You have to experience. And God is going to take you. And I'm sure he did this with Stephen. And this is why he was a man of faith. God took him step by step through some hard times, through some breaking, through coming to the end of Stephen and realizing, Stephen realizing, I can't do it anymore. I can't go any further. In a variety, maybe in finances, maybe in relationships in which he's saying, God, I've done everything and nothing is working. You have to step in. And guess what happened, church? Because God is so faithful. God stepped in. And, and faith is something that grows because we begin to experience the faithfulness of God. So let me ask you this. Just how amazing, then, is Stephen's faith compared to God's faithfulness? Even his faith is completely focused on God's faithfulness. You see, everything about Stephen, radiating the glory of God, doing signs and wonders, speaking truth. And I didn't read this to you, but look at verse 10 there. It says, but they, referring to uh, the antagonists, but they could not stand up against his wisdom, which was from the word, and or the spirit by whom he spoke. I'm going to tell you this, church. When you are full of the spirit of God, and he is shining through you, it is truly so very little of you, if anything. You have no glory, no radiance of your own. But you come to this place where you experience the faithfulness of God. Peter. Peter was in a boat. The storms, the waves were crashing around. They had spent over nine, perhaps even more than 10 hours rowing about three to three and a half miles. They should have done that in an hour or two. Nine, 10 plus hours trying to row in this horrendous uh, storm or waves crashing about them. Jesus comes walking on the water. And Peter says, Jesus, if that is you, call to me, and I will come to you. And Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out of the boat and walks on water. He had to step out of the boat. He had to step into the realm of the very uncomfortable and high risk because he's going to go straight down if Jesus does not, is not there to catch him and support him. And Peter begins to walk on water. Now, can I say, I've never seen anyone walk on water before. It's very possible they may have, but I've never seen it. But even Peter himself, if I'm going to walk on water, Jesus, call to me. Invite me to do this. Because these waves are crashing about me. I've just been through 10 hours of the most frustrating rowing session in my life. 
And if you're not there to catch me, you got to first say the word. I'm going to tell you this, that there are areas in your life in which you have surrounded yourself with the predictable. You have eliminated all risk. You have lived in your comfort zone. The early church did the same. They were proclaiming the gospel, but only to Jews. Acts 8, after Stephen dies, persecution breaks out amongst the church, and they began doing things and going places that were completely out of their comfort zone, even to the point where they started sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. Now, my point is this. Do we want to be like Stephen, and do we want to be a display of his glory? Because it has so little to do with us. We are simply responding to God's grace. We are simply responding to what God offers. And I am simply shining it back to you. I'm simply walking in faith. But if you're going to do that, he's going to call you out of the boat. He's going to say, stop being too so familiar and comfortable where you are. Step out of the boat. Faith is no faith where there is no risk. You could lose something. The church could have lost their lives. But they stepped out. They said, I'm going to follow Jesus. When you're at your work, have you created an atmosphere at your workplace that's really comfortable? Do you relate with people in which Jesus doesn't come up and it's made it comfortable for you? How about your boss? I'll be honest with you. There are so many times in which my goal seems to be to eliminate as much risk as possible. I am not for presumptuous faith. Jesus has to call me out of the boat. He's got to call you out of the boat. There is that step in which there is risk and God is saying, hey, put your thinking cap on, Mike. This, I'm not leading you down this road. I'm just simply saying there are times in which much is at stake, and he's going to say, step out of the boat. You like this area. You like the comfort here too much. Step out of the boat. You're at school, and your professor starts harassing, haranguing, ridiculing Christianity, and it's very obvious he's opposed to it. Do you say anything? I remember when I was in college, God gave me plenty of opportunities. But the truth is, God gave me even more opportunities with the students. Do you pray for those students in your class, if you're a student? Do you not only pray for them, but boldly step out and begin conversations? Do you realize that the vast majority of people who come to Christ do so through a relationship? Not through cold calling, knocking on doors, or doing mall evangelism or anything, you know what I, mall evangelism. That's, a, that's not when you go with bats to a place and start beating people. That's not mall, either. that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about evangelizing in a mall. You understand what I'm saying. We've done this as a church. We've gone to parks and we've evangelized. But most people come to Christ through relationships. 
Look around you in your neighborhood. Look around you at your workplace and in your, your school. And, and who is it that Jesus is leading you to share the gospel with? And ask him, Jesus, are you calling me to step out of the boat today? Then show me how to do that. I want to be filled with faith because I'm going to tell you, when you're filled with the word of God, when you're filled with humility, when you're filled with faith as Stephen was, God is going to make you a display of his splendor, church. That is his heart. What do I have to offer? I'm simply trusting in your faithfulness. That is it. That's all I've got. Anyone can do this. Anybody can be a Stephen. Anybody. Stephen wasn't this outstanding man of God. Whoa. You know who was outstanding? Jesus was outstanding. God was outstanding. God showed up. God displayed his glory. Stephen had about that much to do with him. Thank you, Jesus. I'm just going to step out of the boat. That's all I'm going to do. Can you stand with me? I'm way over time. Don't look at the clock. Church, I, I hope that I was obedient enough to the Lord this morning. I want, I truly believe God wants to stir up this hunger in us. I want more of your glory in my life, God. I want more of, than just the comfortable and the easy. I'm not saying pray for persecution. You didn't hear me say that. I'm praying, God, show me when and where you want me to step out of the boat, and I will do it. So, God, I, I, I am asking that where we need to come to the end of ourselves, that you would quickly bring us there. And where we need to say, I can't, but God can. Where we truly in our heart of hearts want Gideon's 300 as opposed to his 32,000. That's where you want us. That cusp of faith and risk, that cusp of I could lose it all, but I am trusting in my God. I have no finances. I have no idea how I'm paying the bills this month, God. Please, I am being faithful as I can. Show me your faithfulness, God. Bring us to that place, God. And so fill us with your spirit that you overflow in our lives. You heal. You actually speak through us. You anoint us as vessels full of your spirit. God, please, so many truths here. This Help us as we sort through, as we walk this out, God. For one reason only, to be a display of your splendor. In Jesus' name we pray. Mm. Amen. Amen.